Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Patients as Partners U.S. Conference on the topic of the democratization of patient data ownership, returning results. This session is led by Craig Lipset, Head of Clinical Innovation for Pfizer. Craig is joined by Mark Scrimshire, Entrepreneur-in-Residence for New Wave, who is also on assignment as Medicare Blue Button 2.0 Innovator for CMS, and Bray Patrick Lake, Director of Stakeholder Engagement for Duke Clinical Research Institute. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Mark, again, because his work is... Um, his work is really the stuff that's enabling so much of the access that, that we expect and we demand as patients. Just out of curiosity, how many folks in the room have made an effort on a patient portal or otherwise to get access to their health data? How many folks made an effort but were unable to get that access? Yeah. It's not easy, right? Well, let's talk a little more about that. First, I'd like to invite my friend Bray Patrick Lake up. Please join me, Bray. Bray. Craig. Who are you? Can you, uh, can you share with folks here a little bit about you and your journey as a patient and, and around health information and what that's meant to you? Sure. Um, so I'm uh, Bray Patrick Lake. I'm the Director of Stakeholder Engagement at the Duke Clinical Research Institute, and that is my day job. Um, but first and foremost, I think I'm a patient advocate. Um, I, like probably many of you, had a diagnosis that came out of the blue, and I was in a clinical trial that ended up being aborted for uh, slow and low enrollment. And I read about that on the internet. Patients weren't even contacted, and then I later did try to get my data. So that was my first attempt of actually having my own health data, and I ended up accessing that data through what was in a designated record set um, at a university. And so that was in 2008, and ever since then, I've become, uh, I think, warrior is probably the right term. And really thinking about systems that help data flow, um, certainly putting patient needs first, and I've had the opportunity of working on um, the launch of the PCORNET, I was on the executive leadership committee when we sent out all these patients from patient-powered research networks to try to get their data and started figuring out how much it was costing them and how hard it was. Um, I got to co-chair the group that wrote the vision for the Precision Medicine Initiative, now All of Us Research Program, and then most recently, uh, National Academies of Medicine Return of Results Committee. And so we are making progress, and I think you can see from the slide we put together, but we still have a lot of work to do. Can you pull that back up? Thanks. So, Bray, let, there's. Oh. Let me just say uh, one of the things we've done with Blue Button through re uh, funding for, from the uh, Patient Centered Outcomes Research Fund is build integration to the All of Us initiative. So, our API is compliant with all of, all of us. I was going to say, um, <clears throat> well, I'll come back to, to a bit more on that. Um, Bray, uh, we did a quick show of hands this, uh, just before you came up. Data access is still a challenge for so many. Um, I'm curious for your reflections as we see this, this journey that we're on and we look, you know, access on the slide actually looks like it's a, a done deal. It's from the past. We're moving ahead with privacy and sharing and ownership and so much, so much future state, um, but access is still a challenge. How do we reconcile trying to move forward and advance this field while at the same time we know so many patients are still struggling with just information access? 
I think it's it's going to continue to be that way for a while. And so, Mark, I'm super inspired by the work you're doing, and also like Sync for Science, Fire, all the all all the things that are acronyms that are people smarter than me know. And the general patient, we don't need to know about that, but we do need the data to flow. And so, I think you know engagement around health policy. But um, a lot of us in the room are innovators on the Rogers, you know, innovation adoption curve. Um, and we're still having a heck of a time. So I was part of the Get My Health Data. If you go on Twitter and follow me, my profile picture is the giant mess of data that I collected that I can do nothing with. It's PDFs, it's disks. I don't even have a disk drive in my computer anymore. I don't know. Citizen Corp, um, uh, so Devin McGraw, who used to be with Office of Civil Rights, they actually had to go on Craigslist and try to buy like CD-ROMs and stuff yeah. to even read the data, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I think even this week we had a lot of patient innovators and influencers on Twitter and there was a massive thread in a matter of minutes of people still trying to get their data who are still having access issues. Um, and so I think we're going to continue you know, to fight that, but it is meetings like this and sessions like this and also sitting in the room with so many of you that could leave here today and make a small change and it might feel big at your company, but if you all commit to giving back trial data, even if it's simple lab results and starting to build the infrastructure, we can actually make a real impact and transformational change for patients. Pray you flew past something that it's called out there around the 2015 time frame, get my health data. Yeah. Dig into that a little more. What is, what is get my health data? So get my health data um, with National Partnership for Women and Families was um, I think the more organized, nicer version of get my, give me my damn data. <laughs> that was kind of, uh, we had a counterculture revolution yeah. going on. This was much more organized where we sent out tracers. Anybody in this room serve as a tracer to go get your data? Come on, Alicia. Is that like, like a really? secret shopper? Oh, she's putting her head down. Um, yeah, so we send out people to actually go out and try to access your data through these pathways that were supposed to be in place and see what happens and report back. Um, this was really interesting because OCR was actively following, you know, what happened, and they did actually find entities who, um, who impeded, you know, the flow of data. But, so we had this little movement where we all went out and did it, but it still, it continues to go on every day, and I think general people still don't even know they have the rights to access their data. Yeah, one of the interesting things, uh, at the very end of the Obama administration, that bipartisan bill was the 21st Century Cures Act. One of the interesting things in there, and this is probably buried in the ONC notice, is they have the right to charge a million dollar fine per incident of information blocking. Mm -hmm. So you've got to get activated and go out there and ask for your damn data, right? Otherwise, we're not going to change this. How do folks get fined? Have people been fined? The, they're still yeah, working out the regulation. Yeah. That was part of the, okay. the, the delay with the shutdown was that that rule didn't come out until last month. I, under the last administration, I know they were actively fining. And then you guys can see when the administration changed, 2017 is a little blank. Um, mm. <laughs> so I think it slowed down a little. But I think it, I was super encouraged, the stuff by CMS um, recently uh, in ONC. I mean, it, it's yeah. definitely like... It just So the march is continuing, but the more people we get involved in this movement, the more we're going to make the change faster. By the way, uh, getmyhealthdata.org, right? That's the website. Amazing resources for those who had their hands up and are still struggling to access your data. It is a great set of resources, even to share with your providers, because there's a, a button there for patients, and there's a button there for providers, because well-intentioned providers 
but maybe not keeping tabs on what their obligations and requirements are. So I think some great resources there for providers to catch up. Yeah, providers have got basically until about September this year. Uh, the Meaningful Use Certification 2015 basically said EMRs have got to have APIs. They all got together and said, we'll do fire. And effectively, that rule goes into play this year. They have to show 90 days' worth of evidence, which means they've got to do this by September. Right, so you should be going out asking your hospitals, you know, can I get my data via an API? Yeah, so we have a, there's a big trickle down. Yeah. Um, I, so I work at Duke, but I live in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm treated at a community hospital that's, I mean, they're really great, but I asked, how do I get my lab results? They actually have a patient portal, and the folks working in the lab couldn't tell me, and I could have accessed them, you know, yeah. on an app, and they had no clue. And so I tweeted about that, and then um, OCR responded, that's a, that's a fine, you know, you should report them. I didn't, because I think education's a little nicer, but I did say, by the way, you know, I do have the right to these, and. Well, it's like with your kids, right? You start with education, and then you're gonna take their carrots away. Um, people are invited to the microphones at any, at any time. We're gonna carry on the, the conversation here, but by all means, if you have a question or a comment, please feel free to step forward. So, as we go down this journey, and we, we started off talking a lot about access, as far as data privacy goes, um, are, we, are we kind of at our desired state with GDPR and California regs? Are California regs meant to be implied, do you think, for as our new national framework for uh, privacy requirement? How do you see the intersection with privacy and what patients and consumers are starting to expect? GDPR. I, I think GDPR, Ooh. so it was well-intentioned, but it swung so far that it's going to impede the flow of data. And yeah, in in yeah. some of the discussions I've, I've had in places like the Karen Alliance, um, a lot of people are looking at what was done with GDPR. Is, is There's a lot of basis from what we did with HIPAA. And so if you're already dealing with HIPAA, you're in a pretty good place to be compliant with GDPR. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I mean, all I can say from our perspective at CMS, again, one of the problems why we're talking about dynamic application registration and some sort of certification framework is, is that I want to get CMS out of the business of verifying applications. But the biggest thing, we have to do it right now, and the biggest thing we focus on is I want to make sure there are no surprises for the beneficiary as to how their data is used. They should be, have the option to say, yes, you can do it, use it for that or not. And we really have to start from there. There's, there's too many, I mean, I think you gave some examples in your opening words, Craig, about you know, data appearing on, on Facebook that you had absolutely no idea that you'd given that approval. And we have to get away from that. I, I agree. I, I really personally, as a consumer, felt violated. Mm. And I, you know, I'm glad that the WCA actually did that report. But it's distressing because I use a lot of health apps. Yeah. And I'm also a person who would willingly share my data, but when you take it, like that is just, that's wrong. Um, to channel Sharon Terry who says, if you ask me to borrow my bicycle, I'm gonna let you ride it. If you just take it, I'm gonna be mad as hell. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's true. And that felt really, um, it felt really violating. And so I think we owe patients, you know, at least what transparency and the opportunity to consent. What we have to do is, is just watch out that if we apply tighter regulation just think what happened with HIPAA. Mm -hmm. I mean, what does the P stand for in HIPAA? 
You know, everybody's used privacy, no, portability. And it was used by the industry to do exactly not that. But that's right. what we're seeing with GDPR. Because yeah. I tried to export data yeah. last week, and I got a notice that said, this feature is no longer available because of GDPR. Yeah. But that's, yeah. that's the reactionary of, we don't know how to deal with it, and so we're just going to shut it down. By the way, Bray is a former police officer, so I strongly <laughs> advise not taking her bicycle without her permission. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole? So I just wanted to congratulate you guys on having the most art incorporated into a presentation today for you know this time when it's hard to stay awake, but also the most cursing. So I'm not sure what that says about oh a combination of the two. But um, I really appreciate, Bray, your perspective of sharing that you were trying to get your patient data um, being in a clinical trial. And so, Craig, I heard you give some recommendations about Get My Health Data 2015. And that's great for everyday health data. But do any of you up there have a recommendation for some of the advocates in the room who deal with patients who are in trials a lot on how do they request their data? Is there a template? Is there wording? Do you have suggestions for patients? Because I hear from a lot of patients that said, I didn't know I was able to get my data, and I don't even know where to start. So, yeah. uh, my, so some of this I think we'll pick up on at the next uh, panel. But... I think for, for just about any clinical trial participant question should flow to the investigator first. Um, and it should be in their consent as far as some of the expectations around that upfront. Ideally, it would be something people talked about during the consenting process. I doubt that has ever happened, um, but it should be. But more likely, the pathway right now would be uh, through the investigator. I think when we're talking this in the next block of time about the hows of how patients can access their health data, maybe we'll get it back into that around uh, requests. Yeah, and you can put it, so patient education materials and also patient advocacy groups, you can have a download. These are questions to ask before you participate in a clinical trial. Which results, if any, and we should be getting rid of the if any, which results will I be receiving and how do I access them? And when, yeah, totally. But that's next session. Alicia? Um, I just, I want to go back to interoperability for a second because that's sort of my favorite subject or lack of interoperability. Um, uh, what I'm finding is there's a lot with patients that are going out getting their data, and I use air quotes, getting their data, and there's a lot of assumptions that this data will actually be consolidated records. And I think that that's been the biggest shock in the patient communities is when you request data from maybe your primary care physician, it's the data set that comes from your primary care physician. It might not be um, your cardiologist and everybody else that's in the same quote-unquote system, um, but I'm finding that I'm dealing with hospitals and healthcare organizations that might have upwards of 40 different installations of the same electronic health record system, but none of these uh, <laughs> instances talk to each other. Um, so I feel as a patient, I'm still the most important API. I, I am an API because I have to get the data and make that connection myself. And I, the, the amount of time that we have to waste still, I think is tragic. And Mark, what you're doing, I think is just gonna open this up in a way that we've been hoping would happen um, years ago with meaningful use. So I, I applaud your efforts on that. But I'm just curious as to what your, your thoughts are on educating the patient population that one data set is not enough. One request from your primary care is not enough for your complete record. 
th this is the next one of the next challenges. That, so I pointed out, you know, we, we're looking at how do we get connected to all of these APIs. The next thing we've got to do is deal with all the crap data that comes out of all of those. You've now got to correlate that and actually make sense of it. That's going to be the next challenge. But that's where, you know, computers are actually pretty good at some of that stuff. You know, they, they like reading a lot of data. And, you know, machine learning will we'll get there. The first thing, it's the reason I took this job, is, is really that unless you get the data flowing, you can't do anything, right? You're just guessing. But then, so I, I really feel like we still have to keep the people in this. And yeah. so getting to where patients can review their record and see what's mm -hmm. in it, just because it's in claims data, like a prescription, doesn't mean I actually filled it or I'm using it or anything. And so having patients be able to annotate, it's a data quality issue. Yeah. And when we look at what machine learning is doing, it, so we, we say it's, you know, it's the best bad data we have. And if it's the best bad data we have, you know, somehow we've got to get the quality up and it's going to involve people actually looking, reviewing, and, and then having a way to respond. I mean, what if you want to get something changed? Mm. That process is not easy to actually say this is inaccurate, my medical record. Yeah. That's a heck of a time. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the, the things I, I've been looking at is how can we crack the glass in allowing data to go back in? You know, the, the, the whole issue, uh, you know, I, I've got friends in, in the uh, uh, entrepreneur community at HHS one of them was, was doing patient matching, and I always used to rib him every time I saw him, you know, said, patient matching is a lot easier when you actually involve the patient, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so I have to confess that <clears throat> when I first heard Mark talking about the Blue Button 2.0 and this work, I thought, eh, claims data. Quite in the sky. Well, yeah. no, I thought, you know, claims data, it's it kind of dirty, yeah. it's not really me, my EHR data is already bad enough, but to Alicia's point, you know, the first step is to know where where is my data before mm. I want to ask, give me my damn data. I don't even know where to go. Um, I've got data in so many places from so many providers. And to Alicia's point, even within a particular health system may exist yeah. in different silos. So having the ability to have a starting place, the roadmap to where all my data exists, starts to open up doors for entrepreneurs to then step in with the tools that can then help me, now that I know where my data is, to go get it and bring it together into aggregated views that are in my hands. Yeah. And I think to Alicia's point, now the best data aggre aggregated data source is me, um, not a hospital or any other uh, business. It's, it's coming through me to get it. Are you seeing that, Mark? Well, I, I remember a, a number of years ago being at a meeting and there was one of the staffers from the Hill was there, and he said, my Nintendo Wii knows more about my health than my doctor, you know, because he, he you know, played various games. And, but the, yes, we are really, we are the de facto health information exchange. And sorry, this industry has spent billions trying to avoid that fact, right? They, they've done everything to move data around us without us. And it, really, it's got to flow through us. That doesn't mean we have to do the heavy lifting of that. What I believe will happen, we'll start to see an emergence of like concierge apps, or you will choose someone you trust to make sense of that information and warn you when you need to do things. Because you do not care about this data until you do, right? So it, it becomes just a part of the service. And, and I think what we're seeing, actually, MyCare AI, at, HIMSS last year, we actually demonstrated 
like I said, the, the claims history is like your, this connective tissue of your health journey. If you went to a doctor or to a hospital and had something done and the insurance company paid for it, they know the doctor's MPI, they know the facility, you can now start to track back and say, uh, I know where that is. Let's go and ask for the clinical data. So, but now we've got to get all of these APIs discoverable so we can go and find those endpoints. Mark, you mentioned uh, about uh, there being an ecosystem that wants to um, keep data flowing in maybe other channels. Um, you mentioned earlier about so many leaders in Washington today that are talking about the importance of patients owning their data, but patients don't own their data today. Um, who owns health data, if not the patient? Well, sorry, the patient. There, there is no data without the patient, right? Yeah, but you know, so in, in, uh, I think that the last thing I I'd read on this was only the state of Vermont actually has a state law that, that the patient owns their data. Presumably, somebody the, else must own it then. The, the, the hospitals, actually, the providers? Well, no, HIPAA was really a landmark piece of legislation, so, and we just hadn't really taken advantage of it. HIPAA is really the Achilles heel, because it's, it set the rules that basically said, you as a patient, you are the only entity in healthcare that has a legal right to your data, right? You do own it, we just don't have the mechanics of getting to it easily, right? And we've just got to keep knocking those doors down. I think the next step in that journey is going to be the question around when data gets monetized. Because I think most in the room want to see data used for research and for good, but in many of the exchanges, there is a, 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 an exchange of, of dollars that flow with that that people wouldn't necessarily object to, but they would just want to know transparency around if it's th involving their data. The whole work in the, the Karen Alliance around their, their code of conduct has been around transparency. You know, there's no problem with uh, you as patients, you know, deciding to use your data and maybe get financially rewarded for it. That's not wrong. It, it shouldn't be that we mandate everybody does that. It should, should be that we ha understand the services that we're using, what are they doing with our data, and do I have the right say over how they're using my data? That's the, the critical thing. We should be able to go in with, our, with open eyes. And part of this is also doing things like pushing. We, we, we can't mandate with, with, at CMS. It's been a real tightrope walk of if we put too many requirements on application developers, do they effectively become business associates and all that that implies? S but we can make you know, encouragements and recommendations and things like, the ONC did a really good job around the model privacy notice of saying this is, you know, declaring in simple, plain English, this is how your data is going to get used. And so you can encourage people to adopt that. If we start to see that done more widely, then you can start to measure which applications or organizations are doing the right thing with data. And then, you, again, part of the problem we've got with, that, with this, everybody's reviewing applications individually, you know, Pfizer will do it, Merck will do it, Blue Cross will do it. They'll all do it individually. We're much more uh, powerful when we work together as a community and understand then more which are the bad apps, which are the good apps. 
And that's what we're tr I'm trying to get to with this certification idea of saying, if we share that, then the developer wins because they go get verified once and they can present a, a approval many times. The data holder wins because they don't have to run all of that paraphernalia to authorize applications. And the consumer can win because now there's a place where they're verifying those apps so they can go and check whether they're good apps or bad apps. Right? So as a community, we win. Yes, question. Hi, um, Mary Murray. So I'm going to reveal my uh, lack of sophistication on this topic and I am just in awe of all of you. Um, but I guess where I'm getting confused, I feel like a lot of different things are going on there. So for example, um, when I want to get my health data, mm -hmm. it's because I want to make some choices maybe mm -hmm. about my care. Maybe I want to go to a new physician or something like that. And I want that physician to have a full record to be able to look at and analyze and, and help me make better decisions. So that's my personal use of my data, which I consider that I own for that yep. purpose. But in industry, I'm not particularly interested in, an, in one single individual's data. What I'm interested is in the patterns that are in the aggregated data that some somebody like a, a payer uh, who's got their analytics function, I'm interested in the analytics of the data that can reveal patterns to me that might tell me something that I don't know about that patient population living with that disease. And so in that case, I don't know that as an individual patient, you know, I don't know where I fit in a pattern, in an aggregated pattern, so I'm not sure that that bothers me that that's out there. I don't know if I'm an outlier or not an outlier. It doesn't bother me because the payer is providing that analytic service to help somebody else make a different type of business decision. So I guess I'm just getting confused a little bit with what we mean when we say people should own their own data. And um, it's one thing to own your data. It's another thing to sort of put a claim on the analytics, which I don't own and have no idea how to do. And, uh, you know, thank you other people for doing it. <laughs> uh, that I think that's really getting in, into an area where it, it's another part of the whole policy movement has been around this move from paying on a fee-for-service basis to paying for what they, they term value-based care. The more we switch over to that value-based care, it's not, now you start to just change the whole um, balance, really, because now you're starting to create incentives where a provider would rather get data from somewhere else because they then don't have to run a whole battery of tests, which they may not get paid for. And so that, that then also creates interest around, well, should I be, do I start to be interested in those patients' own data? You know, your Fitbit data, your blood pressure monitor data, all of these things. We're not there yet, but the more we move to value-based care, the more that's likely to happen. And, and what was interesting at Health2O last year is uh, there was at least one demonstration where they were effectively trying to build this idea of effectively a health equivalent of a credit score for health, but not measuring how healthy you are, but how engaged you are in your health. And that's, I think, really important because that way you could be really, you know, sick, but if you really understand and take care of yourself to the best of your ability, shouldn't you have, be in a position where your providers 
trust the data that you give them. Mm. Yeah, so there's, there's a whole, th this is the fascinating part about this whole problem that we're facing. There's so many different aspects to it. Mark's leading us into the LC hole. There's a whole like ethics panel yeah. that's coming up with like China's risk score and yeah. I think that- um, We're getting like <coughs> two minute warning. Yeah. I think that on that last topic that- um, I think we've got a question. Yeah, just, just one second. Um, on that last topic that uh, there are many use cases for why patients would want to certainly access their data and, and portability from one provider to the, uh, to the next is a very fundamental one. I think that the idea that somebody is using aggregated data for analytics seems very reasonable. The idea that healthcare is the number one source of bankruptcy in this country, it's not a freemium. I didn't get it for free in exchange for somebody to do analytics off of my data. I paid dearly for healthcare and I didn't have a choice in how my data was subsequently used or, or exchanged. Every exchange that happened for the data to get to that place where it was just used for analytics, most of the time involves some exchange of money without my engagement or participation. Um, when I pick up a prescription for my kids at the pharmacy, I have to sign in the box. I don't have a choice to cross out certain uses. If I want my kids to get their medicine, I have to sign it away in the box. And it's an eight-point type, so you can't right. read it anyway. And so I think, I think to me, the, the question that I think a lot of consumers are raising is, is not, you know, necessarily some may feel that's fine, some may feel it's not. I think it goes back to the bicycle question of just ask. Right? Final question? Yes, and it's, it's something I'm going to just sort of throw out there that... Um, since this is primarily about clinical trials, I have a very uneasy relationship with data. And part of it is that I don't even get to consent to what data is collected or how it's collected. So I kind of feel like I'm a data cow. And as far as owning it, I never feel like I own it. I maybe can borrow it, but it's not really mine. So I think we need to keep this in mind, too. And I, I guess that's not a question. It's just a statement. But perhaps that's something we can discuss as well. The data cow. I'm getting the <laughs> musical tone. So I think that's going to be our parting thought on the topic. Please join me in... Uh, uh, thanking Gray and Mark. Clear peers. Um, we have our uh, follow-on panel, and we're going to dig deeper into the topic around the clinical trial hook on this. And that topic is really about getting data back in the hands of patients. So we have a great group of panelists. Come on up, uh, Jess, Scarlett, Cindy, and Thomas. Please join me.
Okay. So um, the topic that we're going to dig into is around data access and return for patients in clinical trials. And um, I've got a great group of friends next to me. So why don't we go down the line and just uh, maybe you can all take a moment and introduce yourself for the group. And what's your connection to the topic? Are there things you're working on that are connected in some way to what, uh, to what we've queued up here? Jessica, would you like to start us off? Sure, Jessica Scott, Takeda. Um, my connection to the topic has to do with uh, being on this journey, originally starting up seven years ago on sharing patient-level data with researchers so that researchers could maximize the value of the data that patients had contributed in their participation with original research so that researchers external to the pharmaceutical company can conduct further research to uh, help with new scientific discoveries. Of course, it had to be an alignment with the informed consent, but the idea of sharing anonymized patient-level data so that further research can be, can be uh, done was novel. The first platforms um, in, in uh, 2012, a couple years before, um, with um, an initial platform with uh, Yoda. And um, anyway, that has led to another progression in this space, I think in large part because of the patient voice increasing uh, e expectation around transparency that the EU clinical trial regulation then came out in 2014 that uh, wasn't, isn't yet applicable until uh, 2020, but the requirement for aggregate plain language summaries, and those are clinical trial summaries of individual trials that can be shared through the EU database and with study participants to share the aggregate results of the study. So the next step now in this journey is to share the data back with study participants on their own contextualized individual results, including study arm, including their, their primary endpoint and where that it fits within the overall uh, trial. So it's, it's kind of during the trial what we can share and then afterwards as well. And including the plain language summary. So those are my thoughts, and we can't do it alone. So collectively, uh, many of us have joined together, or, or at least a small group of pharmaceutical companies. Uh, it feels like many because we keep seeing the same faces over and over again. But um, yeah, we're working together to try to figure this out. It's complex, but it's incredibly important. Well, I think uh, you, you heard, and I won't uh, belabor the issue, some of the um, challenges that we faced on the um, on IQVIA's front was actually an amalgamation of both uh, sponsors coming and asking the question. Um, we'd like to give uh, patients their data back during the trial or after the trial and noting that we're going to be required to provide, um, certainly in the EU, and we highly suspect that this is coming on the U.S. side or at least um, through probably the consortium of Transcelerate, et cetera. And, um, you know, could we be uh, so deliberate in terms of designing end-to-end -end systematic digital approaches where we can kill two birds with one stone? 
I think at the same time, as we were reaching out to our patient advocacy groups and our patients enrolled in trials, we began to survey and asking the question, you know, would you be interested? And in fact, the, the data were overwhelmingly positive, not surprising that, well, yeah, of course. You know, the, the, the notion from our patient-focused um, uh, areas was that, you know, the patients highlighting, as you heard today and as you well know, we like to give our input into protocol design and then have some sort of bi-directional feedback during the trial and then we certainly want to know, was our feedback actually taken at the beginning? And then tell me what happened at the end. And so, you know, close the, the cycle. And so this is certainly, um, this was probably been about an 18 month journey. And, um, you know, I think it's all culminating and we're seeing now everyone talking, you know, across the healthcare ecosystem, which is, I think, very, um, as Jessica highlighted, very symbolic that it will take the village to get this uh, across the finish line. Scarlett, I heard a shout out for Verily in Mark's presentation. Know, Who's Verily? <laughs> <laughs> um, hi everybody, I'm Scarlett Shore. I, I come from Verily, which for those of you who don't know, uh, is Google, formerly Google Life Sciences. Uh, I remember I've been in healthcare and technology for um, over a decade, and I remember about four years ago hearing that there was a small group of folks within uh, Google X, the, what they called the Moonshot Factory, working on understanding how to take technology from Google and apply that to healthcare. And so um, I, I called them up and begged them to let me work for them. Uh, when, I, when I joined, um, I started working on a project called Project Baseline, and at the time, it had been in development with uh, folks at, at Verily or Google, Duke and Stanford, and it was an idea to create the world and the infrastructure for the future, to create this uh, observational 10,000 person study where we followed these individuals over many, many years and built the infrastructure to collect and organize and start to activate that data um, and then use that as a test bed to start to apply this technology more broadly to clinical research. So um, it's been an incredibly humbling uh, and amazing experience. I work with some of the smartest and, and best people, I think, um, many of which are in this room. It's an incredibly collaborative project. Bray is on our team and um, it's it's been fabulous. I would say all of the challenges we've had, and we've had many, the infrastructure, the normalization, the interoperability, return of results is probably the most complicated. Um, it's something that uh, day in and day out uh, we work on. We uh, have many emails about daily, and so really excited to be here today to talk about it. Hi, I'm Thomas Wicks. I'm with TrialScope, and we have kind of a different background. I have a different background. For the last 12 years, my life has been focused on clinical trial disclosure. So making sure that our um, companies that we work with can post their data to clinicaltrials.gov, UWCT, and other registries like that. Now, what's interesting is that that meets a regulatory mandate, but is extremely hard to use. And I, too, am a patient. I had a daughter that I, well, I have a daughter, thank God. <laughs> my daughter, I enrolled my daughter in a clinical trial about eight years ago, and I'm still waiting to hear what happened. So she spent six weeks daily in a trial, about five hours a day, and we never got anything. And then more recently, um, I was diagnosed with osteoarthritis, so it's not a big deal, but I did think, like, well, this is my opportunity to be in a clinical trial. And I went to clinicaltrials.gov, and I've been doing nothing but for 12 years, and it's not an easy thing to use. And then I thought, well, let me find out the results of some of the trials that are posted there. And 
the data that are on clinicaltrials.gov are not accessible to someone who doesn't have a clinical background, which I don't. Um, so I thought, let me find plain language summaries. I can tell you that fewer than 1% of all trials have plain language summaries. We're guessing it's probably between 1,500 and 2,500 to be generous, which out of this week, it'll hit 300,000 on clinicaltrials.gov. It's pretty sad. Um, and then I'm still interested in the idea that beyond plain language summaries, even things like CSR synopses uh, are accessible to someone like me. Those I can read. So that's one conversation I'd like to have today as well and, and during this conference is, you know, this idea of patients. Right? It's not a monolithic group. It's, it's patients, yes, and some are health literate, some are not. Some are technically sophisticated, some are not. Um, and how do you approach and share that data in a meaningful way? So our sponsors are now building trial websites as a way to distribute this information and make that accessible. So that's kind of the, the, the approach that we're seeing taken, and well, that's my perspective for now. Thank you. I love this, uh, this collective characterization that what we're talking about are deliverables back to the research participant, because we, in research, often talk about deliverables. It's a deliverable for stats, it's the reporting, it's all these different outputs of the study, what goes back to the patient, and I think we heard really well here a few fundamental deliverables that just make sense. Results, individual data. Um, Jessica, I read somewhere that pharma is somewhat risk averse. Um, <laughs> and then I saw you're an MDJD. You're a physician lawyer, so I'm curious What's gonna go wrong if I start returning data and results back to patients? What are the fear factors that company leaders are gonna come back and say, here are all the reasons you can't do that? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I'll start with in the plain language aggregate results um, because it seems like it would be simple. And I worked in this space for quite a number of years developing GSK's approach and participated in the EU task force that developed the official guidance that uh, sits with the regulation. That helped us know what's possible in the EU because we know that the, this is accepted from a regulatory perspective. We know what, it, what will and will not be viewed as promotional um, what um, the, the role of um, the sponsor, the content is laid out, even to the extent of, of headings, specified headings in the regulation, but then the guidance delivers kind of the, the plain language content. How do we make it fair and balanced? There's no official uh, guidance on writing a non-promotional um, summary in this context um, because it's not been done before. So we need clarity as an, or, an industry about how regulators will view um, the, the plain language summaries still in, in the U.S. in particular. In fact, um, your colleague uh, David Leventhal and I worked together closely at Transcelerate to develop with, with uh, Harvard MRCT a draft guidance which we submitted to the FDA to, to see if we could get more clarity, and hopefully there'll be some something forthcoming. But 
the, the view as to the IRB's role in the summaries because we can't tweak each summary depending on the local IRB. Um, that would that would then have we would have different summaries for different locations and that would be a mess um, and slow things down. So those are some examples of, of why I know that GSK has developed plain language summaries while I was there leading that charge that we haven't yet posted publicly because the publication hasn't come, in at, come out and there's a risk of pre-publication um, or, or prior publication that it won't be published in a journal, another risk. Um, so we return those at GSK, we're returning those summaries to patients who participated, but not more broadly because of the concern that we did all this work, but now we can't even communicate that to the scientific community, another you know, factor there. But on the individual return of results, um, I think that a lot of researchers have concerns that we will interfere with the scientific integrity of the study if we start sharing data that is um, that was um, during the course of the study, after the study is different, but it's not been done, so we have a whole new culture change there. But during the course of the study, there's certainly some data that we can return, but it's a mind, it's a culture change, and there is the fear factor of how this could affect things and what, what, um, what we might be sharing that could be um, uh, proprietary in terms of, of developing the medicine. And so there are a lot of factors involved with developing something new in the individual return of results uh, context, and that's why we, Takeda now, and Pfizer, Janssen, Lilly, we're kind of working together as the patient data access initiative to develop a playbook um, to navigate this space. And that's really important because it's not the technology that's the barrier. But for me now, bringing that playbook and developing pilots internally um, so that we can test this out and, and demyth the the, the fear factor and the risks for our organizations. And, and I um, want to get to the monetization issue, but we can talk about that after. Thomas? Can I just add, going back to what you were saying earlier about the plain language summaries, um, the other thing, so you know there's a risk with being promotional um, in what you say, and especially the FDA hasn't been clear on what they'll accept. Some pharma companies, by the way, through organizations like pharma, are asking clinicaltrials.gov to make plain language summaries and attachment type because then it's covered by sort of an umbrella statement that says if it's on clinicaltrials.gov, it's by definition not promotional. Uh, that might help a little. But the other thing is the context in which you share these plain language summaries. So you can, of course, mail them through your sites. If your sites are still in touch with your patients, then that, that may work. Um, but the other option is to put it out on a website. If that's your commercial website, that would be a commercial context and maybe promotional at that point. And so you, again, you have to be very careful. So we've built, for example, a multi-sponsor platform to post, simply to post plain language summaries in multi-language um, settings. So that's one way of doing it. The other one would be like some of, some of the organizations have, you know, let's say, takedatrials.com or something like that, which is disconnected from the commercial site to provide that. But it's the context as well, going back to that side. Thanks, Thomas. And Jessica called out a group that I want to sort of double click on for folks. The Patient Data Access Initiative is not an exclusive clubhouse. If 
your pharmaceutical company wants to get involved, it's really there to help companies navigate this space because some have slides and tools and templates that have worked to get some of their lawyers and others involved. And rather than everybody have to recreate some of those and then have playbooks for what pilots can look like, there's some shared resources available. Jessica, can they stop by and chat with you over Absolutely. the break? Absolutely. Fabulous. Find Jessica. Um, Scarlett, you, it sounds like you put a lot of energy into this uh, in terms of process and thinking. What kind of conversations go on in these rooms that you're convening really interesting people around? Why is this so hard? What are some of the, the different pressure points that you're seeing that are causing consternation and so much discussion? Yeah, I, I think uh, when we all approached it, um, it was interesting what you just said, that it's not really a technology problem. There are so many problems, and it's so complex when we look at what, ha what has to be done. We started by assembling a return of results committee, uh, so that included folks from Duke and Stanford and Harvard, patient advocates, um, and tried to understand what's the standard we can use to understand which results to return, and when we should contact a doctor, or when we should just send it directly to the patient, and there were no standards. I mean, there was nothing, even looking at a a lab report that came from LabCorp versus Q squared, there were different thresholds there of when we should contact the patient. And so just even getting that baseline standardization of when do we notify the site versus when can we go directly to the patient, that required incredible uh, uh, discussions and just um, debate. And it was uh, really fascinating. From there, technology actually is pretty hard when we think about how do you return and in baseline, um, I always translate it to Star Trek episodes to help to give context, but um, when you think about the amount of data we're capturing, it's eight terabytes of data. That's 200 Star Trek episodes, I guess, is what my engineers say. But um, when, you, when you think about that, it's a massive, massive amount of data. And so to understand how do you return imaging data and genetics data and sensor data and clinical data, and what about the EHR and the blue button records that we were talking about earlier, it's super complex to pull that together to understand what you surface to a patient, what you surface to their clinician, what you enable sharing, how you bring together um, aggregate information versus when you show the individual information. So there have been just um, endless discussions around this. Uh, and I think the, the reality is, is there's no simple magic silver bullet that we found. I mean, it's really hard. We are learning every day and we are testing new things and we're lucky that at Google, um, we have the ability to leverage infrastructure for A-B experiments and to understand messaging and to be able to um, iterate on some of this. But uh, certainly um, it is not lost on us how difficult and how complex it is. I'm just curious, as you have those discussions, how much do you feel it's the responsibility in your case as a research sponsor to render the data and visualize it versus using API-based approaches and just saying it's there and there are tools out in the ecosystem, um, but we're being transparent, making it available. You can use it how you see fit. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I, I think what we realized is there's unfortunately not a one-size-fits-all approach. I think um, for we have a, a site at Stanford and we have a bunch of quantified selfers and of course they want all of their raw data and so they just want massive 
massive amounts of data. Uh, on the other side, we have a site in Kannapolis in North Carolina, and if I think we, you know, returned all of that data, it would probably be pretty overwhelming. Not to mention the fact that we probably wouldn't be friends of many of the clinicians when these patients bring eight terabytes of data their, to their doctor and say, what do I do with this? And so um, uh, what we're trying to do is uh, strike that balance and to test and understand um, if there isn't this one-size-fits-all approach, how do we hear what the patient preference is? How do we honor what that preference is? How do we make for those that want um, their full uh, data set available to them and those that want um, more curated uh, uh, information available? So um, it really is learning and testing and, and listening and being humble to realize that it's going to take many years to figure this out. Yeah, I'd like to just comment on that. I think um, as part of the PDAI work, we conducted a patient advisory board um, to find out more about what patients are thinking in this space. And not all patients want their data back as one, so they need to have a choice. They need to have autonomy, and that makes a lot of sense um, given our, our understanding of the patient perspective generally. Um, control is really important, and um, understandably so. When they do get data, they want it contextualized. They want it to be meaningful. They don't want vast quantities. That feels overwhelming and, and anxiety-producing. And it's also anxiety-producing to have to pull the right data together, communicate that data between a study physician and a treating physician to be the go-between. That's putting a lot of burden on patients. In fact, we did a study at Harvard Multi-Regional Clinical Trial Center on exactly this, this chasm between the, the study physician, the patient, and the treating physician. And this study actually, this triangle communication survey showed that the study physicians believe that the patient and the treating physician should have individual data, and it was broken out into categories, urgent, non-urgent, abnormal, kind of incidental, um, the uh, primary endpoint, the plain language study, study arm, and the uh, and normal labs. And the, the vast majority wanted each of those categories, of course some, the urgent, um, even more so, communicated to both the patient and the treating physician. But when asked if this was currently being done, the answer was overwhelmingly no. And I think that the, the problem, having been a practicing physician for over a decade, is that there's no, there's no time. And so they don't want to be in the middle. And that's where technology and an external platform comes in because we can involve the study site and the, the study physicians and the sponsor in creating what works for that study to, to, to share and when. And then make it happen in more of a direct way since sponsors can't communicate directly with patients. But through a, a neutral platform, this can be done. So working together, we can think about solutions to make it possible, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. And, and patients have differing views, study teams have different views, but we need to do something. And that's why piloting and trying things now in the short term to develop a, a, a final kind of way of working that becomes the standard that's interoperable with electronic medical records as a, a next step that we're thinking about now is really important. So for folks in the room from sponsors and CROs and tech companies, how many of your companies are returning 
lay language summaries, patient-friendly summaries, patient-readable. I'm going to come up with a thousand ways to say this. Study results in patient-friendly ways. Aggregate, aggregate. Good. And, uh, okay, you can put your hands down. We'll reset the room. And how many are returning any individual data back to any individual patient from a study? So, sounds like a lot of conversation <laughs> right now. Cindy, you mentioned some sponsors seem to be talking more and more about this. What are they starting to expect from you as a CRO? And is there a not so distant future when a leading CRO like IQVIA might flip the default switch to on and then when sponsors come, they say, no, I want it turned off, but that the default could actually be open? It's a great question, and I and I don't think it's surprising to um, highlight that the sponsors that are actually coming and asking for this information are the PDAI uh, sponsors, you know, in in that regard. And I think you know the the whole notion here is in a an advisory like role from a technology, because I do think that the technology is going to be you know at the hub. And it's also going to be variableized and, and dependent upon the individual sponsor. And that's the complexity that we're dealing with in, in terms of trying to develop a tech and a data-enabled uh, platform surrounded by the right processes and the right support systems because I think there's a level of pragmatism that has to enter into this because it's it's very complicated in terms of being able to dial up, dial down, and being you know, bespoke for each individual sponsor and or trial, for that matter. So I think the pragmatism is, it's probably going to result if I had a crystal ball, and I, I certainly defer to the, to the experts here on the, on the PDAI front, um, but I, I think it's going to be more of a crawl, walk, run. I, I think the plain language summary will be the tip of the spear um, in, in helping to try to, um, how shall I say, level set and generalize in terms of what would be acceptable um, as, as the forefront. Uh, and then I think it's probably going to then be uh, embraced by regulators um, uh, in terms of the globalization of it. And then, because the other pragmatism element here is we're gonna be uh, very constrained at the local country level. As you all know, every country is different in terms of the regulations, the um, data privacy, what can and cannot be regu regulated, which is another uh, critical complexity component for a system to be able to dial up and down, even in a large global trial, uh, considering some of these nuances. It feels like that globalization topic flows both ways because while in some countries, say in Europe, perhaps it's even more ambiguous in terms of, say, a plain language summary today or tomorrow, some of those same countries have a much more hard and fast expectation that if you have my health data, I have a right to access it. And so I'm, I'm curious to open that up for the rest of the panel. As you think about these types of deliverables back to participants on a global basis, how do you see how do you see the scaling? 
you're an expert too on this, Craig. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. <laughs> break, we gotta break the rules. <laughs> Think outside the box. Yeah, no, these, these, that, these are great questions. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> I think I, I don't have much more than what you said earlier, Jessica, and you, Cindy, as well, that I think it's incumbent on organizations to start to experiment. And the answer is we don't know all the answers, but we also know we'll never figure them out if you don't start to return plain language summaries in kanji or try and return data in Germany or just start to figure these things out and chip away. And it's also the power of the collective to be able to work through Transcelerate or PDAI and other places to share because if every single company is gonna figure this out in every single country for both plain language summaries and data return, we're gonna be having this panel for a few years. Um, but if we can take a little more divide and conquer and share some of these learnings, maybe we have a chance. Um, Thomas? I do think it's also the building blocks, right? So you have the results on clinicaltrials.gov. That's one element that many people can't access. But then you have plain language summaries. That's one trial at a time, which doesn't then loses context. But that's a good place to start. At least you're honoring the commitment that our family made. I find out what happened with my daughter through the trial, right? Or what happened in that trial, excuse me. But then taking that to the next step, and then there's other groups within your organizations, like you have the publications group. Why are there so few plain language summaries of journal articles? That's an interesting, you know, peer-reviewed piece of information. Some companies are beginning to talk about that, but that's interesting. I read, actually, that's how I did get to the results of my daughter's trial, but it was hard to read because it was very dense and academic, and I'm not, I am dense and <laughs> not <laughs> academic. So it didn't really work for me, but the, but the idea of being able to provide those kind of summaries and then just keep building on it to your point. Yeah, I, I think um, th there's a lot of collaboration that needs to happen. When I think about plain language summaries, you just reminded me of discussions that we had on the task force to develop the guidance where, um, and even at Harvard MRCT, a working group to talk with patients and, and industry and, and IRB and, uh, investigators. Wouldn't it be nice if the plain language summary compared the investigational medicine to the standard of care? It makes sense from a, a patient perspective, or you know, it, I, you know that I would like that. But that's that is country specific. What is the standard of care, and that changes over time. So it's not the results of one trial, it's suddenly even promotional. And if we take this journey together and understand what is possible and what isn't, given regulations and, and varying legislation across different countries, we, I think, can come to a great outcome. But there, there is a lot of learning along the way because there's desires from the the general public and, and patients that we can't address. And actually that feels really bad from a sponsor perspective because we want to. But if we take it, the journey together, as I said, I think um, it'll be better than us sitting here explaining why we can't do it and we'd like to. Thanks. Scarlett, I'm curious um, your thoughts. You mentioned A-B testing and this sort of triggered in my mind. Um, 
how do we know if we're doing this right? So what, what are like, what, what are you thinking about in terms of measures of success in this area? Is it always going to be around how many clicks and downloads? Is there more of a sentiment of trust that is the desired goal to be able to say, yes, we're doing this right? Yeah, um, we're lucky that we have such uh, detailed data and operational metadata on what patients are doing that we look at a ton of different factors as we evaluate success. So if we release a report, for example, we'll look at everything from um, how long does someone look at a screen or are they likely to move to the next screen? We ask them feedback and say, did this, you know, did this resonate? What did you like about it? What did you, what did you not? We bring them on site and get their feedback as well. So I would say, um, and this is part of the platform, honestly, that we're trying to build uh, and, and make available for other folks understanding that we're a technology company. We're not a, a drug drug company. And so um, we're hoping to be able to um, give some of this access to these microanalytics and operational metadata to other folks um, to be able to measure those sorts of metrics over the course of an interaction with a patient. You have a question. Yes. Hi. I'm Alina Brewer. I work with the Preeclampsia Foundation and I manage the Preeclampsia Registry. Um, so one thing that we've sort of built into our model as a patient advocacy organization that also does research is that we want to build or foster data sharing. Um, and one thing that we, we do with our research is that we um, just build into our budgets that um, all manuscripts will be open access. And we try to make sure that our participants know that they can access the actual journal article um, once the study is complete. And that's something that we try to also promote with any of the investigators using our data. Just a comment there. Are there any thoughts? I think that's fabulous. It shows the type of additional investment that research sponsors of all kinds have to start to make. Are there other upfront research investments? I mean, this isn't free. As the panel thinks about this space, are there other upfront investments that need to be baked into planning and budgeting? Yeah, on the planning and budgeting perspective, uh, when it comes to patient engagement and at Takeda, this, this falls within our patient engagement office, it's on us to demonstrate to study teams, to our senior leaders, um, research teams, the value of doing this because they're the decision makers about their budgets. Until they see the value, and, and part of the, the video that I showed earlier is to help communicate that value so that there's more uptake, um, it, it comes through the patient engagement office budget, which is important to have, to lead teams in that first step. Once they experience the benefit of patient engagement, and this included, the uptake and the repeated um, visits is is real, and it's there because they get it. It's an experiential learning, but I, I think to build it into their budgets is takes that kind of first pass where they don't have to pay because they often think of it too late. It does take three to four months to plan a, an advisory board meeting, so it's not quick. It's um, very impactful and they come away highlighting that impact, usually on those videos that we can then show. But I think it's important to bake it in through um, various means, including um, the company metrics, 
our uh, R&D chief medical and science officers really um, behind this, and that comes through when we talk about embedding a patient engagement plan with each study team as well. I was just going to add, I think we have to change the way that, that we think about engaging patients as it relates to budgeting. Um, we did an interesting analysis recently that on average for every day that a trial was delayed, it caused the sponsor, cost the sponsor anywhere between fifty to $300,000 for your non-blockbuster drug. So if we're thinking that for every day that's delayed, it costs a significant amount of money, those delays are largely due to recruitment and retention problems. And if we don't put an investment in recruiting and retention, then we're going to be losing money. So I think there needs to be a shift in the way that we think about the value and what we're willing to put into that um, to drive value downstream at the end of the trial. That's a really good point, Scarlett. And, and in fact, that's uh, much the same way that we justified at IQVIA the development of a tech platform to accommodate giving patients their data back and planning to give patients their data back during the trial as well as through the PLS um, and or you know, trial results. The notion was, um, boy, that was a really hard sell internally, the cost of building a platform only for those purposes. However, when thinking about this more holistically and the interoperability of a tech platform to accommodate other applications such as direct-to-patient approaches, how to access and actually using some of the very same platform capability to do other things like recruiting patients and retaining patients, even to the extent of uh, connecting ECOA, EPRO capabilities to push and pull information back uh, during the trial itself. So, you know, huge investments, no question, but trying to get, you know, greater uh, return on the investment through other um, applications. So it sounds to me like some of the takeaway messages are there is an ROI that's achievable. It's not the most intuitive of I'm going to give deliverables to patients and there's something that's right there, but there is a value proposition to be had. Companies and sponsors are doing this. Nobody has gone to patient jail for having given back a plain language summary or a data point yet, so others can follow along. Um, and it sounds like there are emerging platforms for people to get excited about from a number of different directions that can, uh, that can help to enable this future state. Um, any other final observation about the future? It's bright. Uh, yeah, I'll just say it comes down to value for the patient. At the end of the day, I'm willing to give Google my data on Google Maps because it gives me value because it helps me get to the place I need to go. So I think we have to think about this as a consumer product. We have to start thinking about how to give patients value and enabling that re reciprocity uh, in the process. That sounds like a fine way to close. Join me in thanking the panel. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch -ch 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full worth prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.